time has come is we've got to go the extra step. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. I'll compromise. We want to get the job done. I'm Addison Lathers. Geez, they're, they're, trying to, they're trying to balance the power here. And I'm Claire Salmi. It's a patriotic responsibility, for God's sake. And this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we're happy to welcome back Professor Herrera to discuss the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the ongoing war and humanitarian crisis. There's so much to talk about in this constantly evolving crisis, so let's jump right into the discussion. Thank you for being with us again. I know you've been on 1050 once before a little bit ago, so it's great to have you back. Nice to be here. Let's start with the buildup to the February Russian invasion of Ukraine and the early days of the attacks. So we interviewed Anton Shirikov, who's a doctoral student in the department and a former Russian journalist, just the Friday before the invasion. And even then, he was uncertain that Putin would launch the full-scale invasion that we've witnessed, despite the military buildup on the border. Were you at all surprised by the invasion? And why was there so much uncertainty in retrospect? Yes, um, I was surprised. And let me just say with full disclosure, until the last moment, I was (laughs) saying in interviews, I didn't think there would be an invasion. And the reason I didn't think there would be an invasion is because I thought it would be impossible for Russia to win and that it would be totally destructive for for Russia as well. And so I thought it didn't make sense for them to do something so crazy. But that view was kind of countered by the fact that there were almost um, you know, 190,000 plus troops on the border. And so on the one hand, it looked like a crazy thing to do, crazy in the sense of counterproductive to Russia's goals and pointless in that it wasn't going to succeed. And um, yet at the same time, there was all those troops on the border and you have to ask like, what were they doing there? Um, why would they have that buildup if they weren't going to do something? So like a little part of me thought like, well, maybe hopefully they would just, it would just be a bluff or they would confine themselves to the 30% of the two republics, Donetsk and Luhansk that they already controlled and they would call it a victory and go home. Because up until February 24th, Putin actually could have said, look, we achieved our goals. We wanted NATO to take us seriously. We wanted the West to understand that we care about Ukraine. And now look, everybody's been meeting with us. Everybody knows our concerns. And so And Ukraine was not on track to join NATO. And so he could have said, okay, we've achieved everything we wanted. And now, you know, we'll just de-escalate. What made you say before the invasion that it would have been pointless for Russia? What evidence was there that they would not have had a fighting chance? Okay, well, not just that it would be pointless, but that I didn't think they could win. And the reason was that Putin continues in the past um, and up until now, continues to not recognize Ukrainian national identity and the resolve of people, citizens of Ukraine, to fighting reimposition of Russian rule over the sovereign territory of Ukraine. So in my opinion, if you look back historically, there are episodes going back, um, kind of more serious episodes going back to the 19th century and into the 20th century of people in Ukraine trying to establish independent statehood. And those attempts sometimes had some success, but then they were retaken by the Soviets or Russian empire. There's other empires, Habsburg, Polish, 
Ottoman empires. Um, so Ukraine has been trying to have an independent state for some time. And Ukraine today is made up of different people. But most significantly is that since 2014, there has been a strengthening of Ukrainian national identity that encompasses not just ethnic Ukrainians, but ethnic Russians, Russian speakers, um, people of Polish or other descent, Jews, etc. So there's a lot of different Crimean Tatars. There's different people in Ukraine who are committed to a Ukrainian state um, that is not part of Russia. And, and that isn't like top secret information. That's sort of like very obvious that I think any Ukraine watcher would see that especially since the invasion in 2014, Ukrainian national identity and resolve for Ukrainian statehood has strengthened. And so even though the Russian military is obviously much larger than the Ukrainian army, and that's why you know a lot of military analysts thought Russia would, would win this easily. Once you have a military invasion, you then have a governance problem. How are you going to govern? And how are you going to govern with people who don't want to be part of Russia? And the political strategy, even to this day, has been absent on Russia's side. So what, what is their plan for even, even when you see they supposedly take a city? What does it mean? Like, who is in charge? And since 2014, their strategy of trying to pay people off and get collaborators, et cetera, has also failed. And, and that's actually failing even more given the sanctions. I think it's something people don't understand that like if you were on the fence and you're sort of a small time regional oligarch in Ukraine, why would you looking the way things have gone militarily for Russia and looking the way the Russian economy is going versus what's going to happen in Ukraine after the war ends, it doesn't make sense to bet on Russia at this point. And so I think Russia's had a difficult time recruiting people to be part of their governance strategy to the extent they had a strategy, which doesn't appear to be evident. Now that we're more than a month into the tragedy, could you give us some insights into what Putin was thinking in invading Ukraine and how he thought it would play out? Well, it seems that most reports, um, they thought it would be an easy victory, that they would just literally like just drive in and Ukrainians would say like, okay, that's fine. Like, we'll give up now. And so it doesn't appear that they were prepared for battle in terms of facing resistance from Ukrainians. Um, and it doesn't even look like there's like a clear plan B other than, okay, facing resistance, now we will target civilians and try to demoralize them. But that seems like where we are, that there wasn't a coordinated plan to take out significantly um, degrade Ukrainian uh, military capabilities uh, because they thought they would be greeted as liberators. So that seems wrong, but it's consistent with the view of denying the existence of Ukrainian nationhood and not thinking that anybody in Ukraine cared enough to fight for their state. There's been some news that's come out just in the past couple of days that relates to what you're saying about leadership and participation, I think, because we've been hearing from U.S. reports, at least, that a lot of the advisors of Putin have maybe misled him about the military status or the efficacy of invasions. Do you have a take on that? Yeah, I mean, my take is like, this kind of intelligence is like saying, you know, intelligence update. Um, it turns out the advisors to the emperor who's not wearing any clothes have been lying to him. I mean, everybody can see that. So it's not really like, oh, wow, like, thanks to my top secret sources, I now found out something. I mean, okay, so maybe that's overstating the case a little bit, but I think that there's a lot of evidence that he is a personalistic dictator 
that he's increasingly isolated. And I don't think that's that's much disputed. I think the visuals around the invasion where you see him sitting at these 30 foot tables far from people he's supposed to be conferring with show that he's not interested in being close to very many people. So I think there's a lot of, and there's other um, stories and anecdotes about how in the past there were people who he, he used to listen to, he doesn't really meet with them anymore, that during COVID he's become very isolated. Today, actually there was a report that he has thyroid cancer. I don't know if any of that's true, but the isolation seems fairly clear. And the strategy, the apparent strategy that we can see from, from the ground, which is that they were unprepared to battle anybody, suggests that like, something went wrong there. Now, should we blame it all on his advisors and say his advisors per se lied to him about the existence of Ukrainian nationhood? I mean, I would say he's made speeches um, and his speech on February 21st suggested his own view of history, which is delusional. And so, you know, who is to blame? Is it him or is it his advisors? I guess I think it doesn't really matter because the, the fact is that he is not paying attention to reality when it comes to the situation in Ukraine. And so I don't know if that's him per se or that's his advisors, but the effect is the same. I don't want to denigrate our intelligence services because I think they're doing a good job. And I guess like, I think the bigger point is that they were correct in saying Russia was going to invade for a long time. So I want to just be on record clearly that I doubted the invasion because I thought it would be counterproductive, very counterproductive to Russia. And at the same time, the Biden administration was saying they are going to invade. We have intelligence saying they're going to invade. So they have done a great job overall. And I think that putting that intelligence out early also um, was helpful in terms of countering Russian propaganda about um, Ukrainian provocations, et cetera. So let me just say, I think the intelligence services overall are doing a good job. I just don't think this particular point about Putin's advisors may be lying to him. I just don't think that's particularly um, surprising or you know a big news point. But what does it mean that they think Putin isn't getting good advice? I mean, I think that just kind of emphasizes the view that we have that Putin is not listening in general um, and not updating. Um, whether we call that, I mean, I have used the word crazy. We could discuss the precise understanding of rationality. But um, I think the key thing is that he is not, he's not using a kind of cost-benefit analysis that other people might use to make decisions. And it doesn't appear to me that he's, he's updating very much in the face of new information, that is. Sure. And that, I would assume, makes it hard to predict if we can't use cost-benefit analysis to suppose what his next steps might be. Yeah, I mean, I think the best we can do in terms of predicting next steps for him is to look at what he has done in the past. Um, and I think that Syria, the case in Syria and the case in Chechnya are the most recent ones, but actually, sadly, going back into some Soviet history and treatment of um, Stalinist treatment of Ukraine is maybe another thing to look at. But I think that in the face of these increasing Russian casualties and the what appears to be a not very well managed military effort. There's a turn to um, targeting civilians. So not hitting hospitals and apartment buildings accidentally, but targeting civilians as a strategy of demoralizing the population and trying to get people to concede and give up because of the civilian casualties. So I think we're already seeing that. And I wouldn't be surprised if we see more of that. And also if we see kind of deceitful 
tactics where they say there's going to be a ceasefire or they say that there's going to be humanitarian corridors and then they actually target people in those conditions. Uh, it looks like today that there are buses going out of Mariupol, which would be good if that actually is a successful humanitarian effort. But I think that we are likely to see much more targeting of civilians um, and cruelty, just outright cruelty by Putin towards the Ukrainian population. But something that's different is that Ukraine is 35 times the size of Grozny. It has 44 million people. And it has, even though Russia has cut off media access about what's happening in Ukraine within Russia, the whole world is watching what's happening in Ukraine. So that's very different from the second Chechen war, which was 1999 to 2009. So I think those factors make it different from, from Chechnya. So I don't think, even though he's using the same tactics, I don't think it will be successful. And even though I think Ukraine is going to pay, is already paying an incredibly high cost, I just don't think it's going to be the case that Putin is going to be able to keep going on the civilian casualties. I mean, I think there's going to be a limit that brings in NATO or NATO countries. Do you think Putin's endgame was different when he launched the invasion versus now? And how has that changed? Well, yes, uh, that's a good question. It has changed in the sense that initially, so initially there's the buildup. Okay. And what is the end game? I think with the initial buildup, the end game could have been stopping Ukraine from getting into NATO. He, I mean, I, they actually wrote out a list of demands. So no Ukraine and NATO, implementing Minsk agreements, Minsk II, which was a settlement of these two regions in the east of Ukraine, keeping Crimea as part of Russia. Um, so those could have been, you know, goals that, that they had initially. And remember that the war in the Donbass in the east has been going on since 2014. It's very unpopular in Russia. It was unpopular in Ukraine. So a lot of people wanted that war to be settled one way or the other. And it was kind of a low level conflict, although about 13,000 people had died. So it wasn't nothing, but you know, it wasn't, it wasn't what we're seeing today. So it could have been that the initial goal was to settle those wars, to keep Ukraine out of NATO and to exert influence by Russia over the so-called near abroad or the former Soviet states. So I think that that we can say that was a goal and that they they stated that pretty clearly. But then with the invasion and going to Kiev, you know, what was the goal? Was it to annex Ukraine, to make Ukraine part of Russia? That could have been the goal. Although on the speeches that Putin gave at the start of the invasion, those were to recognize the independence of Donetsk and Luhansk. So it's a little bit mixed up. If, if the point was to, you know, he made up a lot of things like stopping so, so-called genocide of Russians in those regions, then stopping Ukraine from developing nuclear weapons, which is not doing denazification, which doesn't exist, and then stopping NATO from launching an attack via Ukraine. So some of the goals that they had were just, as I said, delusional in that they, did, they didn't actually exist. So in terms of like, can you achieve something that doesn't exist in reality? You know, no, you can't. So it seemed like though, some of the goals were just to maybe retake control over Donetsk and Luhansk. But then it shifted to this invasion of Kiev and this maybe goal of getting the Zelensky government to just flee or resign and then taking control of the country that way. But that seems to have totally faltered. And so it seems like they have given up on the getting rid of Zelensky quickly, although I think he's still a target for assassination for them. No, no question about that. But it's not clear what their goals are. I mean, they've said they're pulling out of Kiev and then they bombed um, that area. I think they're likely going to focus again on the east and the south. So maybe that's their their goal, but it's not clear that they're going to be successful in those goals. So they may change again. 
What in your mind would make Putin convinced to stop if the end game has now changed? So I think, unfortunately, Putin will stop when he is stopped. He is not going to decide to stop. He is not going to change his mind on his own. He's not going to resign. He's not going to leave the country. So all the talk about off ramps, et cetera, for him, he's not voluntarily doing any of those things, in my opinion. I think that what is going to stop him is additional military support for Ukraine, and the Ukrainians will continue to fight the Russian troops. And if they are able to stop them, that's where Russia will stop. So I don't see Putin voluntarily ending things or coming to his senses or, or anything like that. So I don't think there's any point in um, trying to convince him with promises of anything because he is um, untrustworthy and he lies. And so I think that while a negotiated peace settlement is going to occur at the end of this, it's not going to be because he's been convinced. It's because he has run out of options in terms of military options. So I think that's why, unfortunately, even though I'm, you know, absolutely in favor of peace and de-escalation, I think we know at this point that Putin is not going to stop until, until the Ukrainian army stops him. That's a little bit of a scary prospect. Yes. Although, um, I mean, he has shown himself to be untrustworthy and, and to be unconnected to, as I said earlier, the cost benefit analysis. Like he could have ended this and stayed in power, claimed a victory and just gone home on February 23rd, had a nice celebration of protectors of the fatherland day. Everything would have been like it was, but the scary thing is it is an existential crisis for him because I think his regime is going to be greatly weakened by this if they don't have some kind of victory. And so that's going to make them fight more. And the way that they're fighting is to target civilians. So I think it's, it's a very scary time. But I think that, you know, we're, we're just unfortunately facing somebody who is a really bad actor with malevolent intentions. I want to talk about the Ukrainian response a little bit here, because even U.S. military experts thought that Kiev and Mariupol might fall within a matter of days, if not weeks, but that hasn't been the case so far. So what has surprised you with respect to President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, so maybe listeners know that President Zelensky used to be a comedian and an actor, and he was on a TV show in which he played... uh, a school teacher who, who got elected president. So it's like a, a strange thing if he was on a TV show where an actor becomes president and then he's an actor in real life who becomes president. So, you know, it's kind of strange. A lot of people thought he was kind of a lightweight and um, that he wasn't doing a very good job in various ways um, and that he would, it was just not up to the task. But he is a person who has shown that when life gives you a really big challenge that you step up and meet that challenge. And I think the thing that's amazing about him is he's not like some kind of charismatic superhero. He comes across as sort of a regular person who's like, what the heck is happening? Why, why are we doing this? Why can't we go back to regular life? But okay, I guess like we have to fight because they are attacking us. And so what can you do? And I think he's able to connect with a lot of people because he seems authentic. And he's committed. And I think that he speaks for a lot of Ukrainians who find themselves in the same position of they didn't ask for this war. They weren't saying like, yeah, we want to be the people that stand up to Vladimir Putin. They wanted to just live their life. They had plans. They were just 
doing other things, but they end up in this unfortunate situation. So I think he has um, just risen to the occasion. He he's very courageous. He didn't flee the country. He could have he could have done that. He could have given up. And so I think I think that's why he's um, appealed to people. I think another thing that it's is worth noting to people is that one of the things that comes up is the um, the issue of ethnic conflict. And is this a conflict between ethnic Ukrainians and ethnic Russians? And some people think, well, Ukraine is divided between ethnic Russians and ethnic Ukrainians. And so half the country is gonna support Putin. But that's kind of a misunderstanding of Ukrainian national identity at this point in time. Even though there had been conflicts in the past based on ethnicity and importantly, pogroms and violence towards Jews in Ukraine, that's very significant in terms of World War II, et cetera. People in Ukraine of different ethnicities, different linguistic uh, capabilities, um, different historical backgrounds have come together as Ukrainian citizens. So it's very significant to me that Zelensky is Jewish, Russian speaker from the East, and he is the, the president of Ukraine now. And he's the one being termed a Nazi by Putin, which is obviously absurd. So, you know, I think his own personal biography actually is kind of symbolic of the inclusiveness of Ukrainian national identity right now. And so that's bringing a lot of people together. And that's a very powerful resource for Ukraine compared to at some points in the past when there was more serious divisions within Ukraine. What are some of the short and long-term consequences for Ukraine and the Ukrainian people? Will most of the millions of Ukrainians who have fled thus far eventually return if a diplomatic solution is in the future? I think that most people would like to return. But, you know, if you look at the cost of wars and you look at the buildings that are damaged, the roads that are damaged, all the infrastructure in Ukraine that's damaged, you can see that the cost of this war is very high. People might want to return. But if you look at a city like Mariupol with all those damaged buildings, like how long would it take to rebuild? The war has to end, first of all. Then they have to have supplies. And then where are the supplies going? It's going to take a long time to rebuild. So unfortunately, I think for some people, it's going to be a long time before they can go back. But I think that this, this kind of Ukrainian national resolve is um, something that's going to make people want to go back. To the extent that Ukraine joins the EU, you know, you can say the long-term future of Ukraine is probably good because, you know, they will emerge stronger from this, although they're going to pay a heavy cost. So I think that, that there's going to be a lot of people who want to return, but the practicalities of that are going to be difficult. And also, if you think of like older people who've had to move, if they're lucky, they have family or, or somebody else that can take care of them, you know, moving back on their own, et cetera, to someplace where there isn't a lot of support is going to be difficult. So it's going to be hard for, for different, depending on people's situation to, to move back. But I think that a lot of people would like to move back. And I think that actually makes the refugee situation a little bit different from some other places where people wouldn't necessarily have an inclination to move back. That's an interesting point. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but that makes sense. How is the Russian state media explaining what's happening to the Russian people right now? Because even on Western media, we hear Russian officials claiming that most Ukrainians support the Russian invasion, which, as you mentioned, is not true. But if you're a Russian news consumer right now, how much do you know about the war? Well, there's a lot of propaganda going on. They won't allow you to call it a war. It's a special military operation. And I think the reason for that, I mean, the, the messaging has kind of evolved a bit because initially it was that there are these Nazis and there's this genocide of Russians in the East. And so that they needed to do that. But then 
Like, why would you go to Kiev? Like, there's a lot of things that don't make sense. There's, you know, 10 million plus Russians in Russia who have relatives in Ukraine. There's typically been close relations between Russia and Ukrainians as, as people. So they had not prepared the Russian population to say Ukrainians are an enemy nation, they're not to be trusted, they're terrible, et cetera. Um, they've moved towards that anti-Ukrainian xenophobia. In terms of the special operation, the idea is that Russians are there to save Ukrainians from these terrible Nazis who don't exist. And so the special operation is a is like they're you know helping them out, not that they're at war with them. But you can see that there's a contradiction between if you're trying to say, this is our enemy, we're at war with them, versus, oh no, they're not our enemy, we're actually saving them. You know, it's it's kind of mixed messaging. So they're getting a lot of negativity, but something I find extremely disturbing is that the civilian casualties are being blamed on Ukrainians. I mean, they're saying things like the bombing of that theater in Mariupol, that Ukrainian nationalists went into the um, bomb shelter and detonated, you know, a bomb themselves. And so or the maternity hospital that was bombed, that these were actors, that it wasn't real, et cetera. So there's a combination of denial of casualties and then blaming Ukrainians themselves for the casualties. And something I find just really upsetting is that, so not only you know is that obviously wrong <laughs> to blame victims for their own deaths, but um, there's a parallel in history of the Ukrainian famine, the Holodomor, um, which took place in 1931 and 32, under Stalin, where um, over 3 million Ukrainians died from famine induced by Soviet policies. And when the reports of many victims were coming in, um, the Stalinist response also was to blame Ukrainians, <laughs> Ukrainian wreckers, saboteurs, or Polish wreckers and saboteurs, or Ukrainian nationalists for killing people and for um, killing people in their own family just to make the Soviet Union look bad. I mean, it sounds absurd, but this idea of blaming victims for their own deaths is not, it's not a new phenomenon in, in terms of Soviet discourse. And I think that the Putin discourse, the same thing in Chechnya, um, blaming people in Chechnya for their own deaths is kind of a, a pattern. So the news people are getting in Russia is that one, you know, the anti-NATO, anti-Western discourse, that you know, has a longer history and um, is pretty widely shared in the population, um, that the West is out to get us, that they're punishing us with the sanctions. That's one piece of it. But what's happening in Ukraine, they're seeing either not very much of it, or they're you know, claiming that everything is going fine, that they're helping, and that what things are going badly are the fault of Ukrainians themselves. That's a lot more severe even than I thought. So that's, I mean, obviously horrible to hear, but it's really interesting to see how many different ways they can come up with to bend the information. Yeah, I mean, there's a big debate right now on, uh, let's say, social science Twitter about a poll that came out recently that showed 83% of Russians supporting Putin, having trust in Putin. Now, they, they don't measure support for the war per se, because there's no supposed war going on. But um, the debate is like whether there is, is there popular support for the war? That's the question. And I think the answer is, we don't really know. We know pre-war that there was significant support for Putin. And we know actually from Anton Shurikov's research, who was on your show before, that we know from his research that people who support Putin believe his propaganda. And so it's not that the propaganda is convincing people, it's that people's political commitments lead them to, to read or watch and believe state propaganda. So we know that there's a lot of Putin supporters. Um, we know that they believe the propaganda 
generally before the war. And so that just didn't disappear. But the question is, has the support for Putin gone up since the war started, stayed the same, gone down, et cetera? And the trouble is that the initial unpopularity of the war is shown by the fact that they quickly introduced these very stiff penalties for even saying there was a war, 15 years in prison, for saying supposedly fake things, which the government defines as whatever you disagree with is <laughs> potentially fake news, or criticizing the war effort, et cetera. So they came up with those penalties. They have arrested over 15,000 people and they shut down a radio station that was an opposition station. They shut down social media, including Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and this one alternative TV station, this newspaper, Nova Gazeta. So like if the war was so popular, why would you have to shut down all this opposition? Why don't you just leave it as it was with those people complaining about the government, but not having very much traction? So to me, the fact that they've had to uh, ramp up the repression means that they know that there is either disagreement or there's going to be disagreement with the government policies. So I think that there is discontent, but we don't know. And also in the context of all that repression, would anybody answer a survey honestly? You know, I mean, why wouldn't you be afraid to say you don't trust Putin or you don't agree with the, the government policy? So I think it's hard to know what the direction and scale of support for the war is. But I think we also have to admit that there are a lot of Putin supporters in Russia. There were pre-invasion and they probably still are. And it's also psychologically, if you were a Putin supporter and your son uh, was killed, um, because now there's estimates of over 10,000 Russian soldiers killed, you know, psychologically, it might be easier for you to say, well, he died a hero. This was a good cause. You know, the government is not lying. Rather than to say, oh, you know, he died for nothing, or he died because I was so dumb to support this dictator who did these wrong things. So there's probably some level of denial that people have, even in the face of tragedy or costs, because they don't, they don't want to admit that they're wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Could you maybe talk about the sanctions that the US and other countries have applied to Russia and Russian elites and how those play out? Because I think the implicit model of how sanctions work in the minds of policymakers is that they put pressure on the elites around Putin. But is it really effective? Okay, that's a good question. And it's also like a big debate right now in social science about whether sanctions work, etc. The first thing I would say is the scale, scope, and timing, the speed of the sanctions is unprecedented. So if we compare this case to other cases, it's hard because this is like such a fast, big thing that happened. But there's still more that could be done in sanctions. Analysts that I've seen, people have said this is like a seven out of 10 in terms of sanctions. There's still more. The big loophole in the sanctions, so sanctions broadly were in terms of trade and financial sanctions. So some banks being sanctioned, some businesses pulling out of doing business in Russia, but also financial sanctions in terms of freezing or holding assets of some banks, including the Central Bank of Russia, including its foreign currency reserves. So those sanctions that went into place stopped Russia from being able to import some important things like airplane parts, for example. Uh, that's just one example. The commercial airline industry in Russia is kind of decimated because part of the sanctions were not allowing Russian planes to land in a lot of other places, including Europe. So right now to fly out of Russia, you can fly through Istanbul and I think Sri Lanka, like very few places. Because of that, if you're a commercial airliner like Aeroflot, you cannot sell tickets because now you can only go to one place. And those companies that had leased planes to Russia want their planes back, although Russia's 
claiming they're not going to give them back. So that's just an example of how the sanctions of not allowing airplanes to land leads to airlines not being able to sell tickets, et cetera. But the question is like, how long is it going to last? Uh, McDonald's, for example, closed 800 of their restaurants. They didn't totally pull out, but they closed their restaurants and they continue to pay people. Other stores like Ikea closed the store and is not continuing to pay people. So there's different levels of what companies have done. Now, a big question is like, how long is it going to last? Is this like just a pause? Like McDonald's can, you know, probably manage to pay people for some months and doesn't matter, reopen the stores. Okay. Some other businesses wouldn't have that flexibility. So it's unclear whether the sanctions are temporary and things might go back to business or whether they're going to be longer term. I don't really see a lot of companies going back to business in Russia unless the war ends and there's some serious damage to the Putin regime, because who wants to be associated with this war criminal type regime, right? Some people are saying, well, the sanctions only hit the upper, you know, upper class um, or the upper middle class. And so regular people don't really care. But I think it's, it's kind of too early to tell because there aren't food shortages now, but there could be things that people had plans for, like medical procedures or dentistry or vacations or things like that, or buying a new computer or something like that, that they're not going to be, or a car, like car companies have pulled out. So there's a lot of effects, I think, that aren't immediate, but, but could happen. But one thing that did happen, I guess one other thing we're talking about, is what happened to the ruble. So the ruble exchange rate shot up, making the ruble less, less valuable vis-a-vis -vis dollar and euros. And so what the Russian government did essentially was to make it not convertible by restricting sales. So whereas before you could like walk two blocks and find a place where if you had Russian rubles, you could buy dollars or euros or other currencies. You can no longer do that as a consumer now. And if you had a bank account with foreign exchange in it, where the money was in foreign currency, you have limits on how much you can take out. So the ruble rate recently has supposedly gone up, but this is kind of like a misleading understanding of the exchange rate because it's not actually exchangeable by most people. If you restrict who can buy and sell foreign currency with rubles, you know, you can get a rate that way. So I think it, the sanctions, they're going to have an effect long-term on Russia's ability to wage war and they could have an effect on popular perceptions. But I think it, what matters is who is blamed for the sanctions. And right now, the government seems to be blaming the West. Um, if they can continue to do that, then sanctions are going to change popular opinion. But let me just say, like, the big issue with the sanctions is the energy loophole. So Europe relies on 30% of its oil and gas from Russia. And they didn't just cut off energy sales as part of the sanctions because they didn't think the economies could withstand that. They were already facing high energy prices because of other things related to COVID and downturns in the economy, et cetera. So the energy loophole is there and that's gotten a lot of criticism, but we're seeing right now a lot of work in Europe to reduce their energy dependence on Russia. And I wouldn't be surprised if that ends up being a longer term phenomenon of countries not wanting to do business with Russia and in particular, not wanting to be dependent on them for, for oil and gas. And it's possible that in the US too, that, I mean, there's bipartisan support for Ukraine right now and very clear, except for a couple of individuals, clear anti-Putin sentiment in the U.S. Congress. And so this could be a moment also for the U.S. to reconsider its energy policies and how to 
not just achieve energy independence, but to maybe reduce energy consumption in the U.S. in order to then become an exporter to Europe to reduce Europe's energy dependence on Russia. How concerned are you that this invasion has sort of altered the global order, so to speak? Because two months ago, it seems like the idea of Russians launching tactical nuclear weapons seemed super unlikely, and now it feels more possible. And like you said, the idea of NATO being involved at this point seems way more likely than it did in the beginning. Okay, I want to return to your question about the global order at the end, but let's talk about the nuclear question first. So I still think that any kind of nuclear exchange or use of nuclear weapons remains low. I still think that that's a low likelihood. And why do I think that? Because first of all, like a large scale nuclear exchange is, you know, world devastation. (laughs) And um, I mean, if we think that Putin is interested in that, we might as well stop asking ourselves what he's doing because then he's just completely crazy, right? So if we think he's not completely crazy, then I think any kind of large scale nuclear exchange with the US or NATO is just out of the question. In terms of the tactical nuclear weapons, I think this would be very provocative and almost certainly likely to get NATO formally involved. And I don't see why that would be in Putin's interest because NATO would significantly reduce their military capabilities very quickly. So I don't see why they would want NATO to actually be involved. And I don't see why any tactical nuclear weapon would do anything that they couldn't do, that is a small scale nuclear weapon of some sort why they couldn't just use conventional forces to do that, which would be less provocative. I think NATO, on for its side, I think the strategy, which I hope they're pursuing, but maybe could do a little bit more, is to be as supportive militarily of Ukraine as possible, but without formally involving NATO. So I think covert training of Ukrainian military personnel, sending supplies, et cetera, doing as much as you possibly can without an obvious declaration of war against Russia is the more cautious and better approach. And they have experience with this in the Cold War and proxy wars. So it's not like we've never had a proxy war with the Soviet Union versus the US. That's what a lot of the Cold War was. So I think this pushing as much as you can militarily, but not formally declaring war between NATO and Russia is the right approach. And I think they are doing a lot behind the scenes, but you know, I think it's also reasonable to keep pressuring Um, governments to do as much as they can. But I just don't see why Russia has any interest in a nuclear weapon, um, because this is supposedly territory that they want to occupy or annex, etc. Like, why do you want this irradiated area? There's also reports, by the way, that they dug trenches around Chernobyl, and that dozens of Russian soldiers have been sickened by radiation poisoning. I don't know if that's true, but that's what some Ukrainian sources are claiming, that they've gone into Belarus for, for treatment. Um, and then finally, I think that asking the Russian military to launch any kind of nuclear attack, if anything was going to get generals to rebel against Putin, I think something crazy like that would be. So, I mean, I just think there's lots of reasons why they are not likely to do that. So I think I think the likelihood remains low, although I think to me, the biggest, most likely danger is uptick in civilian casualties in Ukraine. That's where I think is the most likely thing to happen and the most tragic. And I can understand the Ukrainian grief about that because they feel that NATO could stop that from happening now by getting more engaged right now. On your question about the global order, I think actually this war is an event, a 
akin to 9-11 or the end of the Soviet Union. That is something that is going to have implications for international security and international economic relations for some years to come. So I think we're witnessing a huge event in world affairs. And while it's catastrophic and tragic for Ukraine, which is the country paying the big price here, on the plus side, I think there's been a reinvigoration of support for democracy and a reconsideration of the threat that authoritarian countries pose. So the Trump era embrace of dictatorships like North Korea, Putin, Brazil, India, I think that is, you know, it seemed like not that serious, like, oh, Trump says he's friends with Kim Jong-un, like, isn't that funny? Like, now it's not so funny. Um, it's not so funny to be pals with Putin. So I think people are reconsidering, what does it mean for a country to be a dictatorship? What does it mean for them to threaten their neighbors? And how should we respond to those kinds of threats? And should we just respond with a business as usual approach, which is sort of our approach with China? Or do we have to reconsider it and think authoritarian countries are dangerous and maybe we need to do more to insulate ourselves from the effects of their bad behavior. Okay, last serious question for you. The question that's on everyone's minds that's the scariest right now, I think, is, is this the brink of World War III? Do you have a take on that? Yes. So I think it is scary. I still think the threat of nuclear war is low, but I think the challenge is having you know, one of the most effective, largest militaries in the world, as we do in the United States, and having an alliance like NATO, which is so powerful, you invest in those resources in order to do what? And to, to protect your country, but also what are the goals and values that Americans and, and Europeans have? And with 4 million Ukrainians already as refugees, there's 40 million people left in the country. Are we really going to sit by and say, well, we'll just allow millions of Ukrainians to be killed by Russia in this war because it's not our country and we just don't want to get involved? I'm not saying I have the answer to that, but I think that poses a moral challenge to us of why have a military, why have values that you want to support and at the same time not support a country in which there's such moral clarity on who's in the wrong, and that's literally begging for support. So I think that's the challenge, that nobody wants there to be World War III or get involved, but also lots of countries in Europe and lots of people in, in the U.S. in a bipartisan way do not want to sit by and watch you know, another Stalin-esque level of violence against Ukrainians. So I think that's the unfortunate choice that we have. I mean, I, I don't know what direction. But I can see that there is going to be pressure to get more involved if Russia continues to kill civilians in, in Ukraine in the way that it's been doing. Um, and I can also see the counter arguments of doing everything we can to end the violence. But given the direction that Russia's going, given the direction that Putin's going, I just think it's harder where we know what's happening to sit by and and watch it happen. And I think especially in Europe, Eastern European countries who have the direct experience of having been kind of abandoned after World War II and put into the Soviet orbit, they're not sort of taking it lightly and saying like, oh, you know, so let's say Ukraine just gets annexed by Russia. Like, that's okay. They're really not okay with it. They feel that experience and they don't want to see that happen again. So that's what I think is the danger that that's putting pressure on the world to get more involved. We 
typically like to try to end on a positive note about something hopeful on this show, but given the tragedy of this senseless war that's costing the lives of so many people, I'm not sure that's completely appropriate, but we will ask if you've taken away any slivers of hope for the future from what's occurred in Ukraine over the past six weeks. Well, I think the resilience and resolve of the Ukrainian people is hopeful. I think some people might think if I were in a situation, I would do the best thing. You know, we all like to think we would do the right thing or the best thing in a difficult situation, but we don't know how would we react if our lives are threatened, if your family's life is threatened, what would you do? Like, it's hard to know what you would do. And I think that um, it is hopeful. I mean, I, I have hope for all these Russian teenagers who are going out and getting arrested and just standing there holding up a plain white piece of paper or just anything and being taken away by police and just having the courage to say like, well, I'm just not gonna sit by and watch my country become a Stalinist country. I'm gonna do something. And I think the people in Ukraine that are staying and that are fighting despite kind of difficult odds, you know, that it is hopeful to see there's people that, that say, okay, I just want to do the right thing here. And I also think despite our normal partisan bickering in America, which is very serious, you know, and has led to some really serious problems in terms of our democracy, I'm kind of encouraged by the bipartisan support for Ukraine. I mean, I've never seen any other country's flag, say, at the Overture Center before a performance or some other country's national anthem played. I mean, and you go around, I was just in Lake Placid, New York, for the U.S. But I have on a national meet, and there's Ukrainian flags in Lake Placid. I mean, among all the American flags, and it's a very Olympic pro-America kind of little town, but there's, you know, there's Ukrainian flags there. And that's just a small example, but you can see them in different places and different people throughout Wisconsin are interested in this issue that I've talked to. So I'm kind of encouraged that there's a lot of people that are like, hey, let's do the right thing in this case. Let's support a country that is working to stop this aggression and trying to just have a normal democratic country. So it's very, I mean, again, like we have to temper that with the sad tragedy of Ukrainians paying the price with their lives and livelihoods. But on the other hand, it is encouraging to see people standing up for Ukraine and standing up for democracy. I've taught comparative politics classes, <laughs> comparing politics around the world for the last 23 years now. And I think we're in a more hopeful moment in terms of thinking about democracy worldwide. So I guess like, I think there's a little bit of hope there that this has caused people to wake up and say, let's reconsider what we think is important and try to do the right thing in this case. Very well said. We appreciate you being here so much. Thank you for being with us, Professor Herrera. You're very welcome and thank you for inviting me. For more information, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. 1050 Bascom is edited by Addison Lathers and Claire Salmi and produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.